For many, climbing an 8,000-meter peak is a lifetime goal. People save lots of money, train for years, and put themselves at risk just to have a chance at achieving it. You know, I think anyone who summited with bottled oxygen, um, they may have gotten to the top, but they didn't actually climb the mountain. They didn't meet the mountain. Is there a right way and a wrong way to achieve a goal? This is Mountain Meister. This episode of Mountain Meister is sponsored by Wigwam Socks, a 110-year-old company that's utilizing groundbreaking technologies to help your feet last that long. Wigwam's patented Ultimax Moisture Control System keeps your feet cool, dry, and blister-free. They're perfect for running, biking, hiking, and mountain meistering. For 25% off of any and all socks you'd like, go to wigwam.com. That's W-I-G-W-A-M.com and use the code MEISTER at checkout. Hello and welcome to Mountain Meister. I'm your host, Ben Shank. This is the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. And on the other end is Alexander Barber. Hello, Alex. Hey, Ben. If you don't know Alex, he's a high-altitude mountaineer whose tick list is characterized by solo ascents, without Sherpa support, and without supplemental oxygen. These include, but are not limited to, Choi Oyu, Manaslu, and most recently, an attempt on Annapurna, which was cut short by the Nepal earthquake. Alex is a member of the American Mountain Guides Association and formerly a guide for Rainier Mountaineering. Alexander Barber, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. So, Alex, I need your help with something. Uh-huh. I'm going to a dinner after this, and the people that I'm meeting know that I'm recording a Mountain Meister episode before the dinner. So I'm guessing they're going to ask, Ben, who'd you record with? Uh, who, what kind of extreme athlete did you talk to? So I'll say it's a high-altitude mountaineer, which they'll probably be familiar with what exactly that means. Um, uh-huh. But here comes the big problem is that I'm going to have to tell them that for some reason you like to do this in a style where you go alone without yeah. any support from Sherpa or anybody else. And he prefers not to be able to breathe. He doesn't carry any oxygen with him. Yeah. How, how am I supposed to vouch for you? Oh, you certainly shouldn't. Yeah, when <laughs> I run into a lot of people and, uh, you know, tell them what I do. And they're just like, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd never want to do that. And I'm like, yeah, you're you're smart. Like, you should never do that. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty hard to justify. Well, all right. Well, this is your opportunity. That's why we brought you on today. Why do you do this? Um, I think it's pretty multifaceted. You know, you can't just give one. Um, you know, really straight definition for why you do it. Um, I think it's certainly the challenge, you know, climbing is this, this sport where it's, you can constantly be growing. Um, it's pretty hard to top out in it, right? Like, um, if you've gotten really good at big mountain expeditions, well then, you know, you, you get into more track climbing, you're pushing your track climbing or, you know, you want to go do ice and then you're back on ice. So there's so many disciplines, um, that it's, uh, just constantly a challenge to, uh, stay, you know, pretty strong at all of them. And, uh, I think that's pretty appealing. Plus I think, you know, especially big mountains, um, 
you know, you're on it for such a long period of time and, and, uh, the climbing that you're doing, it's almost like a sort of physical meditation. You know, you come back kind of renewed in a way, you know, being out in nature, um, and experiencing, uh, you know, 8,000 meter peaks, especially climbing alone, um, and without bottled oxygen. Uh, yeah, it kind of takes you into a cool place. So. So how do you pick the climbs that, that you're doing right now? I see a lot of dangerous climbs on the on the tick list. Does that attract you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I first went to Choyu uh, a number of years ago, and uh, that was the first time I really experimented at that altitude with the solo kind of no O's, uh, no like personal Sherpa approach. Um, and that attracted me just to see if I could do it, if I could achieve it. Um, and if I could meet the mountain in that way and be confident and be safe. Um, and, you know, I was able to summit to you. And, and then, uh, yeah, I just kept kind of finding that next challenge. Like I was saying before, like there's always that next step where you can increase the challenge to yourself. Mm-hmm. Also, when you go alone, you can't buy a permit just by yourself. Because a permit for the Himalaya is slotted for seven people. So I'd be buying a permit for seven people. So I have a logistics provider in Nepal. And he he lets me know like where the teams are going this season. What mountains have teams that I can buy on to their permit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that also helps me select which one I want to go to. Yeah, but the climbing itself, are you climbing with your team? No. Uh, you know, some days... You know, I'll pass them or something like that just because, especially like on Annapurna, there's so few weather days that many times there'll be one or the other. There were like four teams climbing on that same day. But, um, yeah, you know, maybe I'll share the route with them and, you know, I'll pass them and, you know, high five them and then just keep doing my own thing. Why do you like doing your own thing? This seems like it would almost be something fun or at least a little bit more pleasurable to share the experience with other people. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I really like the challenge of going out there alone. And, and I'm certainly like one of those people who need like maybe like a abnormal amount of like alone time in my life. So um, I think this is one of those ways I, I find that alone time is going to these mountains and doing something that really challenges me and also kind of gives me that regeneration that I'm looking for like mentally. So mm-hmm. does, yeah. the, does the challenge have to be dangerous? Because uh, here's an example. I've heard, I was watching this video. I think it was some sort of viral video the other day of a biker who did a trick where, he, I don't know, it's, it seemed like he almost rode a wall uh, horizontally, right? And if he falls below him, if he falls doing this thing that he's never done before, if he falls, he's dead, Right, but yeah. he could just put a, a foam pit below whatever he's doing. Does does this need to be life threatening? Well, I, I think if I attempted that, I would certainly put foam pit <laughs> below it. But you know, um, I, I actually recently just saw a quote by I think it was Sigmund Freud, um, and it was something like, "Life loses its interest when the highest stakes in the game, you know, life itself, may not be risked." So I mm. think. There's something, um, at least for me, like whether I'm like free soloing on rock or, you know, out on one of these trips where I'm alone in 8,000 meters, um, there's something that's gained 
by, you know, having everything on the table. Now, of course, like, you know, of course, I don't want to die. Like, I want to live until I'm super old. And I think through skill and decision-making and using my past experiences in mountaineering that I can mitigate the risk down to what I find to be an acceptable level. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the end of the day, especially on a mountain like Annapurna, there's so much objective hazards. You know, you're, you're, you're climbing under ice cliffs. Uh, there's rock fall, things that you can't control. And ultimately you are rolling the dice and you're just hoping it doesn't come up snake eyes. Um, you can mitigate those risks by being in really good shape, uh, I function really well at altitude, so I can move very quickly still, mm-hmm. um, so I can mitigate the risks. But, yeah, at the end of the day, there are some risks you can't mitigate. Um, but that's what makes it all, like, so interesting, you know, it's uh, all these different variables. So why – I have a problem with this. Why, when we had Mike Lybecki on the show, who's a very, very experienced mountaineer, yeah, and he says there is no such thing as objective risk. I can eliminate all of the objective risk, and uh-huh. you come on the show, who and you're a very experienced mountaineer, an expert, I'd say, and you tell me that objective risk still exists. This seems this is like a very <laughs> dangerous yeah. discrepancy. It seems like it to me, at least. Why? You know, I I don't agree. I, he is a fantastic climber and uh but i don't agree that there is no objective risk i mean maybe on the mountains he's climbing he's picking very specific routes but i mean there's even the objective risk that what you're climbing on all of a sudden calves off like you know mount rainier all mountains have seen huge collapses of uh the mountain itself and that's an objective risk it's just that's just you know bad luck Mm -hmm. um if you're on it at that time so whether you're underneath an ice cliff or underneath rock fall there's always objective hazards that the only way you can mitigate them is just by moving quickly and using good judgment um you know, on Annapurna a few years ago, there were a few climbers coming through an area called the Crosshair Coolar, really avalanche prone. It's the way you get onto the German Rib, which is the route I was climbing. And uh, while they were inside the Coolar, a massive avalanche peeled off and was roaring towards them. And uh, they were able to duck under and inside of a crevasse, and uh, the avalanche went over them. Hmm. So that's just a scenario in which you have objective hazard, but they're quick thinking. They were able to mitigate it with the terrain that was around them. Um, and like I said, you can do it with speed and efficiency through those areas as well, but, and the time of day you climb. So yeah, I, I definitely don't agree with that statement. Yeah. We need to host a, a mountain meister debate. I think we'll Yeah, get, get a few of you guys on. Yeah. An objective hazard debate. I think that'd be fascinating. Yeah. I think you'd be the only one saying there is an objective hazard, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll need somebody to represent that side. Yeah. So, Annapurna. There's a mountain with some objective hazard in it, or at least you and probably me seem to think so. Yeah. Why didn't you summit? I saw you didn't summit Annapurna. Why not? Yeah, so uh, when I got to 7,000 meters, uh, kind of a lowish camp four, um, yeah, the whole way up, I was uh, watching a weather window continuing to shrink. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of worried that it was a sucker window. And if you get stuck above really Camp 2 on Annapurna on that route and a storm hits, you're you're likely going to not make it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I descended. There was one other team up there, and uh, they went for the summit and had a real tough go of it. Um, didn't make it and uh, barely made it back themselves. But. Yeah. So so that right there, 
the fact that you chose to descend and another group chose not to, why did they choose to go on and you not? What, why did you guys have different opinions? Oh, man, that that's uh, it's a kind of a multifaceted thing again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the team, they were the commercial team there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in their minds that they couldn't make it back up to Camp 4. Hmm. Um, so I think it was kind of their shot. I still think it was a poor choice and ended up injuring some people and they were lucky to escape. But in their minds, um, you know, it was their shot for the summit, their only shot. So yeah. It was a commercial expedition. It, yeah, it was a commercial expedition. From yeah. what I've seen, you aren't the biggest fan of bringing these commercial expeditions to some of the other 8,000 meter peaks besides Everest. Yeah, I think Everest, you know, certainly is what it is. Um, taking that Everest style of climbing and applying it to Annapurna and K2 and these other more dangerous 8,000 meter peaks is just pretty reckless and, and I think selfish. And it's such a poor style of mountaineering. And uh, every year, even on Everest, you know, Sherpa people uh, uh, and high altitude porters uh, pass away, um, you know, just to kind of fulfill the ambitions of Western climbers. And I think as soon as one person passes away, it's it's pretty unjustifiable um, in my mind. Hmm. And what does the other side say? The commercial side? Yeah. What's what's yeah. their reasoning for doing it? Uh, you know, they'll usually cite like employment being the benefit. Um, but as soon as you take one father away from a Sherpa family, like, you know, I just don't know how that family really copes afterwards. Um, I'm assuming not well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll cite that it's their choice, just like, you know, any Western guide who decides to be out there. But, um, I guess my, or, or like the climbers side of that would be, you know, their average income is like five to 600 a year. Um, and if you start waving like buku dollars in front of them, like, I'm not really sure that's a choice for them anymore. Hmm. Um, it's not like a Western guide or, you know, I used to be a guide and, you know, I could make more like working at In-N-Out Burger in California, you know, than, <laughs> than being a mountain guide. Like you're out there because you want to share the mountains. You want to teach people good skills and stuff like that. And, and it's really an employment choice versus I think in impoverished third world countries, it's it's less of a choice for them. So. Okay. Because, because of the monetary incentive. Yeah, exactly. But aren't you, you are making your living putting yourself in dangerous situations on mountains. Oh, uh, well, I wouldn't really call it much of a living, but yeah, <laughs> um, it really wouldn't be a living. Um, yeah. So I guess the, the reasoning of, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this, um, putting somebody's father at risk a Sherpa, who is somebody's father. If you were, I don't believe you have kids. Am I correct? Yeah, I don't. Okay, no. but you do have parents who yeah. who love you, and you are putting yourself <laughs> sure at that? risk. Is that a question? <laughs> yeah, <another> question. <laughs> it's almost, but in both situations, there's somebody who's putting themselves at risk for some sort of living, and somebody loves them, right? Yeah, I think certainly, you know, when I see, you know, people on Annapurna or like these pretty dangerous 8,000 meter peaks, even like Monoslu, where there's pretty big objective hazard over the standard route. Mm. Um, and I see people with, with families, 
um, I kind of cringe. I think that's hmm. that's maybe you know that's their personal choice, sure. But um, I think if I had a wife and if I had kids, I probably wouldn't wouldn't be uh, doing this. Certainly not the solo eight thousand meter thing without O's. I really probably go with the team. I, I'd try to find some way to add take away more risk from the equation. So, so what do your parents think of this? Yeah, they're super supportive. Yeah, they're they're actually probably my my yeah biggest supporters for sure. When I before I went to show you the first time, you know, I, I kind of sat down with them and and my older sister and explained the risks and uh, you know explained my mindset going into it. And uh, you know they trust me to make good calls and, and they're totally behind me. And I think that's a conversation you certainly need to have with loved ones when you're doing something like this. So that there is that kind of bit of closure for them, you know, and I've had that conversation with them, you know, a couple of times now. So um, that seems very important. Yeah, totally. And I think it's kind of like on Annapurna, you know, um, I'm not going to take these insane risks when I'm not going to go beyond what I feel like is reasonable to attain the summit. Cause you know, for me, it, it's more about like the style in which you meet the mountain and, uh, being out there and climbing and, um, the summit is part of the objective, but it's not the whole objective. So, do you have these conversations with yourself where you're kind of just in a conundrum? Uh, like, I don't know yeah. what, what exactly the topic would be. Maybe you can help me out with that. But just like, why am I doing it? Or right. do you have those conversations with yourself? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I, I was I tried to get on K two this summer, and for permit reasons, it didn't work out, and then I, I wanted to go out to Shishapangma this fall and put possibly put up a, a new route linking a 7,000-meter peak with the true summit of Shish. Um, but that didn't work out because Tibet didn't open the border um, this season to climbers. And so now I've got all this time to just kind of train and prepare for the spring. Um, certainly you have those moments where you're kind of reflecting on why you're doing it and, and if it's worth it. Um but they don't, they don't, it's not like, you know, something that sticks in my head all that long. I'd say the biggest things that I like, the biggest arguments I have in my own head is like at Camp 4 on Annapurna or like when I was at uh, Camp 3, I'm honestly looking to go for the summit, but the weather wasn't great and I, I really wasn't sure. Those are the conversations in my head that go on for some time and I'm going back and forth and trying to wrap my head around all the variables and if it's worth it. Um, you're looking up towards the summit and it's kind of it's hard to judge how long it's going to take you to get there there's certainly uncertainty because i've never seen that terrain before what are going to be like the biggest hazards out there is it going to be crevasse falls is it going to be just deep snow that's like you know really tiring me out quicker than i want um is it going to be the weather um am i going to be able to get to the top and back down to camp two before this forecasted bad weather comes in so I'd say it's it's a little bit of both. Hmm. So what about supplemental oxygen? The reason that a lot of climbers like you refuse to use it is like, what's the point of climbing a high peak if you're just going to eliminate that challenge of it being high, the altitude? Uh, but we just spoke with Billy Beerling, and she said that some people will actually take medicines to help with the altitude, another potentially artificial uh, form of assistance. Do you take medicines on the mountain? So I don't. I don't think taking those like prophylactic like ahead of time is really going to help you at all. 
Um, I don't know too many people who do in the 8,000 meter zone, but I don't really ask people either. So <laughs> that's not a topic of discussion that comes up. Yeah, I don't like Are you hey, taking man, medicine. You doping? <laughs> doping? <laughs> no, yeah, it doesn't really come up. But I certainly think people who use oxygen are are leveraging themselves into a place where they're not ready to be. Um, and so it puts themselves in a, in a dangerous situation where if they run out, they're quickly going to deteriorate. And uh, gosh, you know, carrying someone just over, you know, first class terrain, as in like there's a trail, mm-hmm. uh, trying to get someone who's incapacitated, even just down that in a litter or whatever you have is quite difficult. Getting someone down from high up on an 8,000 meter peak is damn near impossible so um Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's it's definitely safer for me personally to just acclimatize and uh you know i've gone to eight thousand meters you know three times now on four expeditions to eight thousand meter peaks and i've never had a problem it's safer for me and if if you're going to use bottled oxygen like why even spend the money to do an eight thousand meter peak like Mm -hmm. you're really taking away one of the biggest components of an 8,000 meter peak, you know, um, people generally don't go there because it has like splitter granite. That's like, you know, going to blow your mind, right? People are going there because it's 8,000 meters. So I think then to put a mask over your face, um, and start breathing O's, it's, it's a huge contradiction. And, and, uh, you know, I think anyone who summited with bottled oxygen, um, they may have gotten to the top, but they didn't actually climb the mountain. They didn't meet the mountain. Um, so they kind of leverage their way up there. Yeah. So do you think oxygen should not be allowed unless for, I guess, for emergency purposes? <laughs> yeah, I think in a perfect world, sure. That, that would be, that'd be the way I'd want to see 8,000 meter peaks run. Like if we could just cut out oxygen, mm-hmm. cut out all the commercial expeditions, that would be fantastic. Like I look back at people like John Ross Kelly and uh, all these, all these great climbers who came before me and were in the era before commercial mountaineering. And I always wonder, you know, what that was like, but, um, ultimately, you know, that's, that's never going to happen. Uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about this. We recorded a discussion at the American Alpine Club's benefit dinner. This was a panel discussion with a lot of uh, well-known mountain guides and Sherpa. And just to hear their perspective on what's going on on Mount Everest and now to hear what you think about these commercial-style expeditions. Uh, yeah, very interesting. That's episode 106 uh, on our website or on iTunes. Also on our website is your gear recommendation, Alex. We like to get one from every Meister that comes on the show, although I do forget occasionally. Uh, what would you recommend to our listeners? One piece of gear. Ooh, just one, huh? How about one. two? Yeah, you can do two. Okay. No, no more be, than that. Okay, I gotcha. Uh, yeah, my first one is, uh, like, my, I use the Hilleberg tents on all my trips, uh-huh. especially the Hilleberg Solo. It's like a one-person tent that is really lightweight, so it's like its weight-to-strength ratio is, like, really what I'm looking for for these Himalayan trips. Um, it has like a really functional vestibule as well. Um, so that'd be my first one. And then uh, my Samsung phone, actually, my Galaxy phone. Uh, it kind of does so much for me. It's my camera. Uh, with, there's so many devices out there now that turn it into my sat phone as well. Um, wow. And I can like access social media with it too. Um, and then it has like a really easy way to put in micro SD cards. So I can bring like a lot of movies and TV shows with me, like at base camp, even up onto the mountain. Cause I need to bring it cause it's my sat phone and my camera as well. Yeah. Um, and you can pop in extra batteries. So I'll carry like two extra batteries and uh, that'll last me for over a week. 
up on the mountain. Um, so huh. yeah, it's just a really functional device that I like. Good answer. So are are you? I assume you're sponsored by Hilleberg. Are you sponsored by Samsung? I am not. You're no, not. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, LeBron James, and a few other yes. people. <laughs> yeah, I think I might have to work on that one for a while. That would probably fund your expeditions. <laughs> yeah, that would be a big one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Hilleberg Tent and Samsung Galaxy on Alex's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Alex, you are today's mountain meister who do you want to hear on a future episode oh there's a there's a couple people i'd like to hear a uh, john uh ross kelly uh-huh. be super interesting he's like a you know visionary mountaineer from uh you know uh the bygone era before commercial expeditions and all that and and his son uh jess ross kelly is a friend of mine and doing big ascents out in uh you know patagonia and alaska hmm. and then i guess another person would be uh hayden kennedy uh, I don't really see too much from him, but he's, you know, one of the top alpinists uh, in the States. So it'd be cool to hear more from him. Keep an ear out for Hayden Kennedy, Jess Ross Kelly, and John Ross Kelly on a future episode of Mountain Meister. You can find out more about Alex at alexanderbarber.com or go to his Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. We'll have highlights of today's episode, also a comment section if you have anything to say about what we had to say. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ben. Meister fans, this episode of Mountain Meister was sponsored by Wigwam Socks. They want to make your feet as happy as their employees in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, where the average employee tenure is 17 years. For 25% off of your purchase, use the code MEISTER at checkout at wigwam.com. Thanks, Alex, for joining and for sharing your comments with the world. Meister fans, if you want to share yours with the world, don't forget, you can go to Alex's Meister profile page. We'll have a comment section there. We'll also have extra content from this episode available through our Play Director package. That's on our support page, mtnmeister.com. Click on the support tab. You can also email me at any time, ben at mtnmeister.com. If you have any feedback for the show, whatever you'd like, shoot me an email. And finally, enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. You've been listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.